I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is G. Wayne Miller, author and staff writer for the Providence Journal. His new book is Kid Number One, Alan Hassenfeld and Hasbro. Long before Hasbro was a $5 billion toy company and one of America's leading philanthropies, Alan Hassenfeld's grandfather and great uncle were refugees who hawked rags on the streets of New York. G. Wayne Miller shares how they went from penniless immigrants to building what became the world's largest toy company, Hasbro, which is short for Hassenfeld Brothers. It follows one family's dedication to the American dream and is at once the sequel and pre-sequel to his best-selling Toy Wars, the epic struggle between G.I. Joe, Barbie, and the companies that made them. Uh, Mr. Miller is also a filmmaker, a podcaster, visiting fellow at Salva Regina University's Pell Center for International Relations and Public Policy, and co-host and co-producer of the Telly Award-winning weekly national PBS TV and Sirius XM satellite radio show, Story in the Public Square. Welcome to the show, Wayne. Nice to have you here. Catherine, thanks for having me on. That's uh, very nice of you. I'm looking forward to talking. Yeah, it's great. Well, first of all, I'm ex- I read the book, and um, I have. I mean, I, I actually I couldn't put it down. It's very because it, it's it's really interesting because I grew up with all of the toys that you're talking about in the book. You know, from Mr. Potato Head on. So uh, yeah, uh, yeah, really interesting. So, but I guess my first question though, who did you write the book for? Who do you see as your audience? I, I wrote it really for a mainstream audience, uh, certainly people who like or have had toys, which I think is pretty much everyone, but also I wrote it for a business and a philanthropy audience. Uh, as you mentioned, these two young Hassenfeld people, Alan's grandfather and great-uncle, Henry and Hillel, they came to America in 1903. And they were teenagers, they had no money, they spoke no English, and they were escaping religious persecution and potentially slaughter. Uh, They were Jews, and so they made it here safely, and they landed in Manhattan. And again, as you said, they they started hawking rags, I mean, literally rags. They They were living on the Lower East Side. They would travel up to the Garment District, which is Midtown, and buy the remnants, you know, after the clothes were made, there were scraps and whatever, and they started hawking those on the streets of Manhattan. But they found out that many of the textiles were actually made in Rhode Island. So they began coming to Rhode Island and going to the factories, the textile mills, and buying this cloth. Uh, and they got a very ingenious idea. And this, you know, we're, we're looking now in, in about 1916, 1917. At that time, pencil boxes were very popular with school kids. They were made of wood, and you'd buy them, you know, for your, your children, and they had pencils and a sharpener and an eraser and whatever. The Hassenfeld brothers got the idea that, wait, we can make a really nice pencil box by lining it with cloth. So they started manufacturing what, what you might call sort of deluxe pencil boxes, and they made a go of it. And then they got the idea, well, why are we just putting pencils in these really cool boxes, why don't we put toys, basically? So they manufactured plastic stethoscopes and thermometers and began marketing what they called junior nurse and doctor kits. And that was really the beginning of Hasbro, which, uh, as you mentioned, is a $5 billion company. 
it's, you know, the, the list of brands we could talk about forever, but they've got the Transformers movie license, you know, which does a blockbuster license. They've got Nerf, My Little Pony, and again, as you mentioned, my favorite toy, Mr. Potato Head. Mr. Potato Head. Yeah, but I want to st- I want to go back a little bit because you know I- I'm yeah. fascinated with those turn of the centuries. You know, these guys were what 14 and 17 years old, and I think Correct. about who our 14 and 17 year olds today. If you want to make the comparison, and yeah. where they can, yeah, how you know their creativity and their ability to 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 be able to you know execute all this, even though you know they had the ideas, but you know look what they did. Um, so it is an amazing story. It is one of those stories that, though politically, there were many of those kinds of, you know, creative young men at that at the turn of the century who did similar things in other businesses. So uh, it's it's a kind of a fascinating time, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah, it is. You know, and and the fact that they that they got here, they they were from what is now Poland. And at that time in Eastern Europe, uh, there were a number of pogroms, which is when what you would call white supremacists today were were slaughtering and killing Jews. And so they they made their way to Germany where they got on a boat and came over, landed in August of 1903. And of course they never forgot their background. And once they were established here in the in the United States, they began bringing over other relatives, people that they didn't even know, strangers. So essentially saving them from the fate that could have been theirs as well. So that's really the roots of the philanthropy that um, the company and Alan Hassenfeld carry on to this day. It's, you know, it's really in their, their corporate and, and family DNA to help other people. And not simply fellow Jews, but there are a lot of secular causes, medicine, education, you know, the, excuse me, the Hassenfeld Children's Hospital at NYU Langone was established with a $50 million gift by Alan and his family here in Providence, Rhode Island. There's the Hasbro Children's Hospital. And again, the list is very long, but it's really, you know, it's, it's a nice story, particularly in, in well, 2019. A, when we don't and I just want to interrupt everywhere. you. It's a nice story also, particularly now uh, in 2019, because of, you know, I guess, you know, there's a lot of attacking corporations for what they do or don't do. And then you have the example of Hasbro, as you say, with the hospitals. I, I don't pass it every day, but the Hassenfeld Hospital here in New York City for kids. Um, yeah. So, it, yeah, it's a company doing good things, corporate responsibility, which I think is really maybe your book is it's timely. We need to be talking about that right now. Um, no, I, I totally agree. And, you know, of course, there are many other companies that do great things philanthropically, but there are some that don't. And there are certainly, you know, wealthy people and that that give back. There are other wealthy people who do that, but there are other wealthy people who do not give back. So I, I, I kind of view this, uh, you know, in addition to the toy history, uh, which I think readers will find fascinating, and not just the uh, Hasbro toys, but also Mattel toys and toys from companies like Ideal and Marks no longer around. So that was part of it. But really, I was hoping to to write something that would be inspirational, something that we, in these sort of dark times of 2019, can look to and say, wow, here's some good happening, both on an individual level in terms of Alan Hassenfeld and his family, and on the corporate level in terms of Hasbro. So I think you've, yeah, you've done that, I think. 
Yeah. What about, let's go back to the toys, because the toys yeah. kind of reflect, not kind of, I mean, they reflect sort of what's happening politically at the time. I mean, you mentioned um, the uh, Hillel and Henry uh, had the pencil boxes, and then they started, uh, they created these nurse and doctor kits. Of course, the doctor kits were for the boys, and the nurses' kits were for the girls, because yes. that's what it was <laughs> at that time, right? Yeah, exactly, um, very gender-specific, yep. Yes, very gender-specific, and then Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head, who I probably, there's n- not many people who don't know who Mr. My grandchildren have Mr. Potato Head, who's now plastic. When I grew up, it was yeah. a real potato um, I don't know about you, but you, you had a potato and then you stuck in the plastic eyes, nose and mouth and we loved it, but it did yeah, get all of, and, and yeah. That, that was, you know, by 1951, which is uh, the year I'm going to tell this story about, by 1951, Hasbro, you know, it was a, it was a medium sized company. It had these doctor nurses kits and, and some other, you know, cosmetic kits for the girls and, and whatever. But in 1951, an inventor from Brooklyn, by the name of George Lerner, came up to Rhode Island, where Hasbro was and still is, and introduced himself to Merrill Hassenfeld. Merrill was running the company at that time, and Merrill is Henry's, the late Merrill is Henry's son, and it's Alan's father. And he showed up with these plastic pieces, you know, noses, eyes, a pipe, arms, legs, and demonstrated it to Merrill Hassenfeld. And as you said, you had to actually stick them into your own vegetable. You could do it in a potato, a sweet potato, a pepper. He had tried to sell this company, this concept rather, to a lot of other companies, and they'd gone, yeah, like, right, whatever. They'd all passed on it. So he kind of moved down the line and got to Hasbro. And Merrill thought this was great. So they brought it on the market in 1952, and it was an immediate smash hit. It also was the first toy ever advertised on television. Uh, I think anywhere in the world, certainly in the United States. And if you do a Google search, a YouTube search for Mr. Potato Head first TV, first toy TV commercial, you'll find clips from that commercial. So, you know, so even in 1952, Hasbro was thinking very much TV. And of course, a lot of, you know, a lot of their products now are either on TV or movies or whatever. But again, you mentioned that Mr. Potato Head is still in their line. It has been in the line every year, and they keep reimagining it and remaking it, and it's just a great toy. I don't know anyone who doesn't have one. (laughs) Who doesn't have a Mr. Potato Head. You know, you're talking about the marketing, because I think that obviously is is key, and being able to be one of the first companies or the toy company to to advertise on television. So that was like a huge thing, right, to be able to see that and to... And because before everything was done, what, you know, in the magazines and, and, and newspapers, I guess, right? And that was it. But yeah, now, yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was all newspapers and magazines at the time, um, you know, obviously displays in stores. So Merrill just, he, he, he saw, I guess he was a pioneer in that sense. He saw the, the potential for this thing being advertised on television. And, and there were some early children's TV shows at that time uh, also. And so he, he knew TV was, was the future, and he made it the present, too. And, and I really, I urge people to go and, and find that commercial. It's, it, it is so 1952. It's a, it's a wonderful commercial. 
Yeah, I will and, do that uh, because sometimes I go back and look in, uh, you know, Howdy Doody and Pinky Lee and all those. That was exactly at that time, beginning that, of that the was 50s. Yeah. Um, let's, but now you mentioned Merrill. Now, Merrill's son is Alan and then his brother Steve. Let's talk about the two brothers because Alan wasn't the one who necessarily wanted to be the head of the company. That wasn't his thing, but his brother Steve did. So that's another story. Correct. That is a story. Yeah, yeah. that's another great story. Um, Merrill had three children. Merrill and his wife Sylvia, the late Sylvia. They had three children. Ellie Block is her name today. And she's very much involved still in philanthropy. And two sons, Stephen, who was about four years older than Alan. And Stephen, from a very, very young age, uh, I mean, really from the age of five or six or seven, was absolutely fascinated with the manufacture of toys. And he couldn't wait for the weekend so that he could go with his father to the factories at that time. They were, you know, the factories were here in Rhode Island. There no longer are. And he just loved that. I mean, he seemed born and destined to run a toy company. And he actually left Johns Hopkins before he graduated so he could come back and actually run the toy company. Now, you had brother Alan, who is, you know, the protagonist of kid number one. Alan really had no interest in the company. He was a very different personality type than Steve. They were very close throughout their lives. But he was a very different personality type. He was sort of a free spirit. He wanted to be a writer, maybe. He wanted to travel the world. And he did not want to work for Dad's toy company. So fate, however, made, made the story end a little bit differently. When he was in college, Stephen, who was then running the company, asked if he wanted to go to Japan for a summer. Um, they were then making the heads of G.I. Joe's in Japan. Now, Alan had always wanted to go to Asia, so he said, yeah, I'd love to. And that's where he started in the company. And So he did stay with the company. He became the number two, and he was second in command in 1989 when Stephen tragically died of AIDS. So now you had kid number one, the nickname Alan gave himself then. You had the kid brother suddenly in a position, do I take over? Do I run this company or not? And, and there's a scene in the book and also in Toy Wars where the night before Stephen's funeral service, he spent with Stephen, obviously by the side of, of his coffin. And he, it was almost like this metaphysical moment where he said to Stephen, what should I do? And Stephen said, I think you need to run the company. So he did. And he took it to even greater heights. Uh, Stephen had bought Milton Bradley and had made Hasbro a, a Fortune 500 company. And Alan did a lot of other acquisitions and, you know, was a great success. And then he nearly killed the company <laughs> by, a <couple laughs> of bad, by a couple of bad product decisions. Now, was that the so flubber? Fl- the, the flubber? Is that the, no, that just, no, no, that was a different owned, one. Okay. Yeah, flubber almost killed the company in 1962. That was on Merrill's watch. And flubber was, you know, was tied to the Fred McMurray movie, The Absent Minded Professor, and it was rolled out with you know, all kinds of fanfare, and this is the greatest toy ever. And so they, they ramped up production, began to sell it, and it turned out that there was, a, there was an ingredient in flubber, it was like this putty-like compound, that caused skin rashes so kids started getting sick there were lawsuits and he had to take it off the market 
So that was 1962. That nearly killed the company, and then next year he bought the rights to G.I. Joe, so they were back on top. But Allen's faux pas, as it were, was he bought the rights to Pokemon in the 19, late 1990s, and also they had the rights to Star Wars, but Star Wars went through a bad year. Long story short, the company almost tanked, and at that point he handed over control of it to Alvarecchia, who is also a central character. And that's well, when Alan went into the, the world of philanthropy, where he, <coughs> excuse me, where he remains today. You know, it's interesting because I think companies, you know, they talk about, I guess, what the first generation creates a company, second generation keeps it going, and the third generation it, it goes down the tubes. But um, yeah, the third I guess, generation kills it. That's kills the company. <laughs> yeah, what, kills the company. Like, right. <laughs> But it but, was just that Alan knew to to turn the company over to someone who, you know, um, Al is his name, I guess. Al um, Varecki, yeah. Al Varecki, yeah. So that that didn't happen. You have no, to. No, you know that that I think that's fairly unusual too. Yeah. You know, you know, here was Alan, chairman and CEO, major stockholder in this company that was until you know the Pokemon situation was doing incredibly well, Fortune 500 company movies and everything. He was a wealthy man. He was running it. He had proved himself to be a worthy successor to Stephen, and he knew he, he, he knew he couldn't do it. Yeah. So he decided to get out and hand it over. But there are other people in that position, you know, chairman, CEO, stockholder, who would have fought to the bitter end, you know, pride and ego and whatever. And that really speaks to Alan's character. You know, he's just a marvelous human being. Yeah. Well, it speaks Great also guy. to the corporate culture, I guess, right? I mean, the kinds of co- kind of company that uh, that the family is running. I want to go back to because all these toys are related to politics, as I said before, and like GI Joe, yeah. that was like GI Joe at a time when, first of all, boys didn't necessarily play with dolls, and it is kind of a doll toy, even though it's military, yeah. and military wasn't too popular at the time. So that, too, was a kind of a, a, a leap, a, a big decision, which, you know, turned out great. But um, Yeah, well, that, that was Merrill, again, Merrill gambling on something. And when they, when they showed G.I. Joe at Toy Fair, Toy Fair is every February in New York City, has been since you know, the early 1900s, when he introduced G.I. Joe at Toy Fair, and it was a doll. I mean, it literally was a, you know, it was a 12-inch, 14-inch figure. It was, it was a boy's doll. A lot of the buyers went, oh, my God, this is going to be another flubber. You know, Merrill, are you, are you kidding me? But once it got into stores, kids loved it. Uh, where it began to get into trouble militarily was as the 60s uh, progressed and then the early 1970s and the Vietnam War became so unpopular, um, they actually had to take it out of production because by that time it was not something that you wanted your son to do, you know, play a military man given what was happening in Vietnam. But then they brought it back on Stephen's watch in the 1980s and it's still in the line, but... Nothing, excuse me, nothing yeah. of the magnitude of Transformers or Nerf or Magic the Gathering or any of their big, big brands right, right today. Now, um, Wayne, what about Barbie? No, that's, was a, that's a big competitive doll, right? 
Yes, yes. Barbie, Barbie came on the market in 1959, and, and I told more of that story really in Toy Wars, but I, I summarize it in Kid Number One. Uh, it was a huge success right from the start for Mattel. I mean, just a, a blockbuster hit. And Hasbro had wanted to have something that would compete in the girls' market. And so they tried doll after doll after doll. Meryl and then Steven. Steven was obsessed with coming up with a girls' doll that could compete with Barbie. And he never did. And he lost money. He, If you read the book, you'll see all these crazy dolls from the the 1970s and 1980s that are, you know, they're collector's pieces now. But they never really got the magic formula until My Little Pony, which is not really a girl's doll, but it's a girl's toy. So that became and still is one of the, the great successes for Hasbro. But, you know, there was a corporate drama. Mattel tried to uh, acquire or, or to buy Hasbro in a hostile takeover attempt on Alan's watch. So there's been this rivalry between Mattel and Hasbro really from, from 1959, and it continues to today. You know, Hasbro recently got the rights to Disney's Frozen, which Mattel had owned, so you can imagine how that hurt out there in California. But yeah. that, that's, you know, it's a corporate rivalry that I found very fascinating, and so I wrote about it, and yeah. it continues to today. And probably will continue <laughs> um probably okay, forever as long forever, as yeah. we're around yeah well, so bringing us up today like in the present i always think about okay toys now we're in the digital age how do these toys fit into that or how does hasbro's production of these toys because things have changed and i think you talk about and we go back i guess to the marketing and the fact that toys are not just here in the united states obviously but it's global now you know that it's all over right. the world so that changes everything so yeah talk to us about that what what because it's a big difference now with with all of this uh digital media you know. well there of course there is a huge difference you know the actual plaything the thing you hold in your hand and you can do whatever with remains you know strong and remains a staple of of hasbro and also of mattel but the world, as, as you mentioned, has really moved to the digital age. So a lot of Hasbro gaming and Hasbro um, toy playing or, or playing is online now. Uh, and I'll give you an example. Magic the Gathering, which was originally a card game, still is a card game, is now a, a, a giant business for Hasbro online. And so they, they have their own channel, they have their own games, and, and the future increasingly will be digital and playing online, whether you're at your home computer, your laptop, or your, your digital device, or your cell phone, or whatever. So that has been steered into the future. Um, under Brian Goldner, who is the current CEO, he succeeded Al Varecchia. But that, I mean, that's, the world has shifted there, so toy companies shift too. So that, yeah, and toy companies, I, did, I don't know if I mentioned it in the beginning. No, I don't think I did. The toy companies, the revenue that toy companies bring in is what in, in this over? It's, oh, what is that? $100 billion? Ten, I mean, I, it's, I don't know. If, I don't know what the total revenue, I guess it would depend on how you measured it. I mean, if you add in, for example, the Transformers movie line that, that Hasbro has, Several of those titles have done over $1 billion worldwide. 
So if you start adding in that piece of the quote-unquote toy industry, along with the digital, along with the actual still you know, toys, uh, I, I think $100 billion or more w- would be an estimate. I've never really seen that aggregated or totaled that way, but if you bring in Lego and Mattel and, again, Frozen, you know, Disney's Frozen. I mean, how much does that add? Huge. I think, yeah, I think when I was, uh, after reading your book and I looked it up, I just, I have it right here. I think it's a $110 billion a year business with, with all the things that you just described, all the, uh, the companies. Yeah, yeah. And, and these companies, including Hasbro, really now talk of family entertainment. They, 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 they are toy companies, but they're really family entertainment companies. Uh, and that's, that's how they present themselves to the world and, um, and, and, you know, don't forget, speaking of family entertainment, one of, the, one of the great buys was Milton Bradley that Stephen bought in the 1980s. So that, that brought in Monopoly and all these games that you can play online, that you can play as a family, and Candyland and Hungry, Hungry Hippos. They've all, they all exist as an actual game, a board game, but also online. And again, the revenue there is very significant. And then you have Lego, of course. Lego's the biggest, I think, toy company in the world, isn't it? It is. Yes, yeah. it is. It's, and they're, the Dutch, I, I've yeah. forgotten the figure. They're a 6 or $7 billion company. So, um, but again, you have to add in the movie stuff. You have to add in theme parks. And it's kind of all woven together now. Yeah. I think Disney probably had the earliest vision of this and, and certainly has carried it out now that they're doing Star Wars especially, which is, again, a Hasbro toy. Well, we have a couple minutes left. Uh, love talking to you. And uh, there's so much in the book. We covered some of it, but not all of it. So you got to go out and buy the book. And yes, uh, so, yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> to read more. <laughs> uh, we just whet their appetite. Um, Wayne, so uh, kid number one, Alan Hassenfeld and Hasbro. And the author is G. Wayne Miller. And websites that we can go to to get more information about the book, to buy the book, and also maybe and about what, about you and what you're doing, because I assume this isn't sure. going to be your last book. We have, we, we have a book site, kidnumberone.com. That'll give you links to where you can purchase it and to social media. We've got a, a very vigorous uh, Facebook page, uh, a Twitter account, obviously. And my personal author, filmmaker, and whatever website is gwaynemiller.com. So you can learn a, more about the book, this book, and my other books, and other stuff, including uh, our national PBS show, Story in the Public Square. Great. And, thanks uh, so much for being on the show today. Catherine, thanks so much. Uh, Great I appreciate it. To you. Good conversation and yeah. happy holidays. You too. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Mm-hmm. 